Hey, this is Siddhartha Herdagan from the United States Naval Academy, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Siddhartha Herdagan, and I'm the assistant chair of the Department of Leadership, Ethics, and Law at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. And I uh, teach courses in leadership, and I supervise the department. Well, tell me a little bit about uh, the general history of the United States Naval Academy and what its purpose is and uh, and what it graduates. Yeah, it's a long and illustrious history. Uh, the Naval Academy was founded in 1845, and it was uh, developed as a way to build uh, career naval officers. And as most people are aware of ROTCs uh, at various colleges across the country, uh, the ROTC is where the Navy gets most and all the services, really, but I'll just speak to the Navy. But we get most of our commissioned officers through the ROTC program. But the uh, Naval Academy still has a place in the Navy because uh, we feel like uh, we are creating the uh, premier officer culture uh, for the, the United States Navy. And all the curricula that goes out to the ROTCs are, are developed and established at the Naval Academy. So uh, really, the Naval Academy is where we decide what a naval officer looks like, and then we try and, and send that out to the, the fleet. Now, I, I have to give a, a little bit of full disclosure before we go into talking a little bit more about the Academy. Uh, for those of you listening, I had the opportunity to uh, visit Siddhartha at the Naval Academy in November and dialogue and, and talk with a lot of the midshipmen students there. And what I found was, was absolutely fascinating. I mean, I was talking to largely what, what we would typically consider undergraduate students. And the level of discussion we had, I, I actually, uh, I pray for that level of discussion with my graduate students. So w whatever you're doing there to progress them through, you guys are, are doing an absolutely fine job. And uh, I've since become enamored with the Naval Academy and how it operates. But talk to me a little bit about the process that the midshipmen go through as they progress through the Naval Academy. Absolutely. And, you know, what you saw uh, when and during your visit uh, was a, a random sampling. You know, we didn't, we didn't pull together the best uh, midshipmen that we have there. It was, it was just a, a, a random class, a leadership class of, of uh, Navy midshipmen. But part of what makes these uh, students great is there's a, a big uh, – let me start. Let me just say that it – when we pull together the students that are going to be a midshipman, it's a pretty extensive screening process. There are a lot of people that would like to go to the Naval Academy that don't make it in. But it's also the type of person that applies to the Naval Academy because, you know, you can look at any uh, big-name school. There's a lot of great universities out there, and they all have competitive screening processes, and it's hard to get in. But the type of people that go to the Naval Academy know that they are going to be in, committed to the Navy for uh, six or eight years after they graduate. So it's people that know that they want to go into the military, the people that uh, come to the Naval Academy, they're people that want to be leaders, that recognize the, the need for great leadership within the military. So I think that part of it is self-selection process of who goes there. The other part is what you're asking about in this question, what do they go through when they get there? And the, and the students that you were talking to, the midshipmen, were second-class midshipmen, which would be the equivalent of a junior in a civilian institution. 
But those the three years, they're in their third year at the academy. But what they've been exposed to in those three years, probably six years of uh, civilian uh, experience in terms of the intensity of the experience. Uh, they are, are constantly not only learning about leadership, but experiencing leadership. They live together in Bancroft Hall in the uh, Brigade of Midshipmen. They're all in charge of each other. It's a great peer leadership laboratory where they get to, uh, from day one, as a plebe, when they show up at the academy, they are being taken through their paces. They're, going, they're being indoctrinated by other midshipmen. You know, by the first-class midshipmen who are uh, about to graduate. So uh, even from day one, it's not the, the officers, the uh, commissioned officers or the faculty that are driving this, but it's their peers that are driving it. So there's a great uh, peer leadership laboratory going on. And there's also the fact that they're there 24 hours a day. They live on campus. Uh, it's not that... Going to class is not optional for them. They're, they're, that's part of their required duties. What do they get for it? Well, they get a free first-rate education. You know, uh, and I say free, meaning there's no out-of-pocket expense. Obviously, they they owe the Navy uh, a commitment of service afterwards, but they get a first-class education, and so we expect them to be there. This is their job, full-time job, to be on campus studying or going to class or exercising. And you saw all the midshipmen that you were there are in great shape because every one of them has to be involved in some kind of sport. That's a requirement. And uh, I know it's this way at all the service academies, but I know that the sport requirement is definitely working for the Navy as they have currently beat Army, what, eight years in a row in the Army-Navy game? Yeah, well, um, really, uh, it's a great rivalry that we have, but it's also... um, a close relationship that the Academy has, the Naval Academy has uh, with West Point. We do a lot of uh, academic stuff together, and, and always these sporting events are fun to come together. The The Army-Navy football game is a big one that gets national attention, but all our sports, you know, we compete uh, uh, back and forth uh, with them, both on a uh, varsity level as well as uh, uh, at every skill level that, that you can imagine, uh, we have competitions back and forth. They're close. It's easy to get to. Uh, I think we would have as much fun with the Air Force Academy, except they're all the way across the country, and you know you just can't take a bus up there uh, after class one day. Well, they're the Air Force Academy. Why can't they fly here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. They should. They should just fly out and play us every other weekend. <laughs> Well, sports aside, I think you said something very interesting about the the peer leadership uh, and leading each other element. Uh, One of the challenges I talk to a lot of people, in particularly in undergraduate uh, education and and leadership education, is that it's it's very hard to teach undergraduate leadership in the sense that we we throw out this term student leadership, and what we really mean is, is kind of student servanthood, people who are serving on different committees and that sort of a thing. But for the most part, uh, apart from the Naval Academy, I haven't I haven't really encountered a very very um, rigorous way to teach through experience to teach undergraduates uh, leadership qualities and and leadership and give them a chance to practice leadership at the undergraduate level. But talk to me a little bit more about uh, the formal process of instructing uh, leadership at the United States Naval Academy. How what courses they teach teach and what experiences they go. Yeah, I mentioned at the beginning that the department that I work for is the Department of Leadership, Ethics, and Law. Uh, so during the four years that a midshipman is at the academy, 
they'll take four what we call core courses. The first thing they get is leadership, their, uh, their plebe year, their freshman year. Uh, they'll take an introductory leadership course. The next year they take an ethics course. In their second class midshipman year or the junior year, we teach them leadership again, this time at a little bit higher level. Uh, usually when we talk to the plebes, it's about followership and understand where their leaders are coming from and how to be a good follower. But then when they're a second-class midshipmen, now we're talking to them. They're about to go out to the fleet, so we're talking to them about how to be a leader and a junior officer in the fleet. And then their last year there, their first-class year, they are taking a law class, and largely how law applies to warfare and the, the particular law of the military, which is the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And then we send them out the door to be leaders out in the fleet. But as I said, that's, the, that's kind of the formal aspect of what we teach them about leadership. But the, the more important part is that experiential leadership. Uh, and during the summers, we give them opportunities to be in charge of each other. We'll, they'll go on. Um, we send out sailboats, 44-foot uh, sailboats that go out for three weeks at a time, a crew comprised of midshipmen, uh, that have to work together and figure out how to be leaders, peer leaders. We send, uh, we take advantage of uh, Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School. We have a relationship with them. Uh, we send a bunch of midshipmen out uh, every summer. They go out on these Knowles uh, expeditions, and and they take uh, turns being in charge of the group for a few days and get a lot of feedback uh, from their peers on how they're doing. Uh, things like that, and those are great things to do during the summer, but year-round they are dealing with each other, you know, during the academic year uh, in positions of authority, and that and the brigade leadership is peer leadership. It's, it's students, uh, other midshipmen that are then put in charge of the, uh, their underclassmen, and uh, they have to, you know, from the, from the brigade level down to the company level and platoon level, they're all here is working with each other, correcting each other, counseling each other, and figuring out what works and what doesn't. And when I'm teaching my class, I taught the uh, second class uh, midshipmen this past semester, their, their leadership course. A lot of the things we talked about were what was working and what wasn't working at Bancroft Hall. That's, Bancroft Hall is where the uh, midshipmen live, so that's where a lot of this experiential leadership takes place. Uh, a lot of it after hours, you know, early mornings and into the evenings uh, when they're not in class, uh, they're exposed to each other. And, and they really get, uh, in those four years, uh, a tremendous amount of experience seeing what works and what doesn't work. So when they go out to the fleet, they've got a good idea how people are going to react to them as a leader. I don't know if you could replicate that on a civilian campus. Because you can't keep people on campus 24 hours a day, eight months out of the year. You know, it just it, it just doesn't work. So um, these are a peculiar group of people that have committed to do this, uh, and they reap the benefits of it. And I think that we churn out of the Naval Academy so that the best leaders that our country is going to have in the coming years, whether they stay in the Navy for a career or whether they do their, their six years or eight years and go into a civilian profession, they're going to understand leadership. Oh, absolutely. And, and talk to me a little bit about, you know, after students graduate from, or midshipmen, excuse me, graduate from the Naval Academy, they are commissioned as officers and they 
or uh, I, I forget exactly how long the commission is talking about maybe the average commission and what a, a naval officer does a naval academy graduate officer does within the Navy as far as leadership is concerned well there are a lot of um, officer positions in the Navy that are um, particular task oriented uh, doctors and dentists and lawyers and uh, supply uh, personnel, uh, intelligence officers, all these people have a particular specialty that they're going to do, and, and they uh, have commission uh, just like the other officers uh, in the Navy, but they're called the uh, staff corps. So they get a staff commission. They're staff officers, and they'll only serve, they'll serve in different positions of authority, but only within their specialty. So lawyers will be in charge of lawyers, and intelligence officers will be in charge of lower-ranking intelligence officers or enlisted personnel. The people that we graduate from the academy, though, are all uh, unrestricted line officers. And that means a line officer is in charge of, of everyone. You know? So they're not confined to a particular uh, staff or, or core specialty. So these line officers can be in one of four communities. They're either a surface warfare officer who uh, they drive ships, then you have uh, aviation officers, you have submarine officers, then you have special warfare officers. So uh, if, if you're going into one of those communities when you graduate, you'll be commissioned. Uh, well, I, let me rephrase it. I, I'm in the Navy, so I'm Navy-centric, but I regret to say that I, I left out uh, a big portion of the Naval Academy graduates also go to the Marine Corps. So uh, I know some of my students have to <laughs> remind me all the time, hey, some of us are going to the Marines. Yeah. So we do graduate uh, Marine Corps officers as well. So they'll be commissioned either a, uh, a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps or an ensign uh, in the United States Navy, which is the, the lowest rank, 01, uh, in, the, uh, in the Navy. And then they'll go to school. They'll, then they'll learn their specialty. So they already have their bachelor's degree. They're educated. But now we're going to teach them something specialized about what they're going to do in the Navy. Uh, we're going to teach them how a nuclear reactor works, if we're going to send them to a submarine, uh, we're going to teach them how to fly an airplane, or we're going to teach them how to drive a ship, you know, or uh, special warfare, you know, Navy SEALs, that's their own special deal there. And the learning never stops. In fact, that's, that's one thing that I admire perhaps most about the culture that I got to observe at the Naval Academy, that it doesn't seem like uh, the learning ever really stops. It truly is a lifelong thing, particularly with career officers, but you know, I, the Naval Academy was sort of one of those. It was a learning organization before Senga even made the term popular. Right. Um, talk to me about you, you had the chance to, in, in essence, you you are given the opportunity to grow the next generation of naval leaders, you know, the most powerful naval force in the world, and you guys are in charge of the, teaching the leaders how to lead. What are some of the challenges of teaching leadership to midshipmen? Well, I, I'll tell you the biggest challenge is to – uh, get out of their way and let them do it uh, because we, the, the people that are teaching them are experienced and we want to uh, say, you're doing that wrong. Let me show you how to do that. But uh, we recognize that part of learning about leadership is doing it wrong and then talking about why it was wrong. And, uh, you know, there are environments where you're not going to let that child touch the hot stove, where you're going to step in and make sure they don't walk out into the street. But we've got a bit of a controlled environment. We recognize that, hey, they can make some mistakes here at the academy that aren't going to affect them long term. So let's let them make some mistakes. Uh, but that's hard. You know, it's, it's hard. It's a challenge for uh, leaders 
who have experience to be able to hold back and let their uh, students make some mistakes. The other challenge being at an academic institution is that we want to make everything academic. And the students just want to know what's going to work. You know, they want the answer, uh, they want the formula that they can just put into practice and they can go be a good leader today. And uh, so that's a struggle to bring in some theory and to talk about the development of leadership and leadership theory over the years. And as you well know, and we talked about while you were here, the, the various progression of these theories. And, and today, there's not one theory that everyone agrees is, you know, this is how leadership works. So we have to lay out for them a bunch of theories and say, uh, there are good things in, in a lot of these theories. Some of them are outdated. You know, we no longer think about great leaders as being born. We know that we can develop these, the, the, a style of leadership through experience that's going to be effective. Uh, we don't have to rely on a DNA. However, as we're developing that leadership style, there are, you know, different methods that are effective. So we're not just going to give you, hey, here's the formula. Uh, and that's a challenge. It's a challenge because the students really want just to have an answer. Yeah, no, I, I, and, and some things never change even in, in civilian, uh, even in civilian academies, and also, even in teaching with executives, I, I run into the same thing. It's, they, they want a model, and, and most most people who sell a model are, are largely selling you know, snake oil. The, the example that I always go back to, and I don't remember if I said this when we were together, but I, I always describe leadership theory as, as useful lies, in that some portion of it is very, very useful, and some portion of it is a lie because it's an attempt to explain within a model this grand, larger thing, but you have to you have to kind of know them all so that you know which one to tap and, and when. It, it's not unlike physics. It just as, as there's not a unified theory of physics, there isn't a unified theory of leadership. And I, and I don't know that there will be because it's such a, a multifaceted uh, concept similar to I mean, the entirety of the physical universe. It's a pretty big concept, and so it's hard to get down in one little equation. And it's much harder because you're dealing with human beings, you know, whereas the, the physical universe largely uh, reacts the same way every time humans adapt and change and they start to recognize, oh, yeah, I've seen this technique before and I'm not going to fall for that, you know, and that's where you start getting into reverse psychology where, okay, you've seen this before and now I'm going to act like I'm doing this and I'm going to, because I want you to do the opposite, you know, and the, so that type of dynamic goes on in human interactions uh, that forces us to, to reevaluate, to constantly look at what's effective today uh, how can we change and, and be more effective tomorrow? Absolutely. Well, um, speaking, speaking of today and tomorrow, transition a little bit. I have a couple questions for you personally. Uh, what are you reading right now? Uh, <laughs> well, as, as every academic, I think, uh, takes the opportunity during a, a semester break to read something that they want to read and not something they have to read <laughs> because we read enough of that uh, academic stuff during the year that we have to read to stay up, uh, stay current on, on what's new. So I'm actually reading a book right now just sort of for my personal pleasure. It's called uh, Too Close to the Sun, uh, about the life and times of Dennis Finch Hatton uh, by Sarah Wheeler. It's a fascinating book about a really interesting guy uh, who lived during the turn of the century, the 20th century, that is. We've turned another century uh, just recently. But at the turn of the 20th century, he was born in the United Kingdom in uh, 1887 to the son of an earl and really had 
a great life. I mean, if, if you uh, can think back to that, that time period, you know, he's growing up in an age where uh, the British Empire is really at the, the, the top of the world. They are the world power. Uh, and, and he lives to see, you know, the, the world kind of changing before him. Uh, and he doesn't realize it, of course, and no one did at the time, that this was the uh, apogee of, of the British uh, dominance. But it's interesting, to, as I read about his life and the things that he did, uh, to think back on that era and how we never realize when it's happening to us, when we've peaked, and when we're just, you know, just starting on the, the downside uh, of that hill and, and gaining momentum uh, downward. But he was an interesting character. He uh, served in uh, World War One and really was an explorer that uh, spent a lot of time in uh, British East Africa, which is mostly comprised now uh, Kenya. And uh, he was uh, mentioned by uh, what was the uh, the author Karen Blixen wrote out of Africa, uh, and and she mentions him. They were contemporaries and, and knew each other in Kenya. But as you know, you can't help but, uh, and like I said, I'm reading this for my pleasure, but you can't help but think about the, uh, or at least I can't help, but think about the leadership aspects of, of his life and how it is that our leaders today can be affected by the, the fact that, you know, he came from the aristocracy, from an empire that was uh, really at its peak. And uh, I wonder how many of our leaders today, uh, certainly every American is privileged, mostly beyond what they know. I mean, a lot of Americans don't bother to look outside uh, of our country and see what the state of the rest of the world is, and, and that we are privileged uh, to be where we are, and yet maybe we are at the, the peak of our uh, empire. You know, where, where does that put us? in the world if we're now just cresting over the top? And what does the future look like for American leadership? So it's interesting as I, as I read through this book. I, that's not a projection uh, by any means or a prophecy of what's to come for the United States. I think we've got a great country and um, we've got a lot of uh, progress and, and uh, a lot of, you know, the future's bright for the United States. But it's an interesting concept to think about. Oh, no, absolutely. And, and like you said, the, the ironic thing about uh, us, and, and one of the things I appreciate most about all of our all of my dialogues with you is that uh, you can kind of draw leadership lessons from kind of almost anything. And it may be the error of just seeing it everywhere, um, and it may be the fact that there's a lesson in almost, you know, any experience, any story has some sort of lesson that you can take with it, adapt, adjust, ponder over, and, and develop into. And that's one of the things I admire most, uh, truthfully, about your, your blog, we, we haven't mentioned it. We're like, you know, 20 minutes in, and we've never even talked about that principle of failure. But one of the things <laughs> I admire most of that is the diversity with which you approach uh, this complex topic of leadership. Let's, let's talk a little bit, because I, I want to talk about what's next for you and what's coming up, and I'm sure that involves the principle of failure. Well, uh, yeah, we probably haven't mentioned it because it, it's not the foremost on my mind. Uh, you know it. I, I, I haven't posted anything in about a month. Uh, it's, it, it is a blog that I like to use to explore things I'm thinking about, uh, whether that's uh, economic, leadership-related, uh, whether it just has to do with uh, personal interactions or uh, finding happiness. Um, it's just a, a place where I can 
post my thoughts and, and maybe get a dialogue going with some other people that are interested in talking about the same things. But uh, what's next for me is actually kind of uh, exciting. Um, when I was over in the Middle East uh, last time, I was involved in uh, standing up a, a new um, base over in Bahrain called Issa Air Base. And it had been a, a Bahraini, or it is actually a Bahraini military uh, base, but the United States was looking to expand our presence there. And I was one of the uh, people involved in, in developing this uh, new air base uh, footprint for the United States. So uh, I've been at the Academy um, for about a year since then, and they are looking to increase the U.S. presence there on that, that air base that I help establish. So they've asked me to come back to Bahrain and be in charge of the command and control structure there for about a year to help it get established during its first year. And it's a great opportunity for me to take what I know and what I've learned here at the Naval Academy uh, and back to the front lines there in the Middle East and to uh, be a leader of people again and not just teaching leadership, but to be in charge of some folks and also to kind of bridge the gap between the uh, academic community here in Annapolis and the tip of the spear, as we like to call it, out there on the front lines and bring some leadership lessons back to them that have been reinforced to me here in the, an academic setting so I can take that out to the folks uh, in the fleet and hopefully remind them uh, what we're teaching our midshipmen uh, at the, their first years in the, their first exposure to the Navy. And um, then I'll be back at the Naval Academy uh, next year. So a lot of things happening in the next uh, 12, 14 months, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds sounds exciting, and we'll be sure to follow it. I mean, Leader Lab is all about bridging that gap between theory and academic and, and application and practitioners, and uh, you're doing it uh, both ways now, back back and forth, so we'll be sure to follow it. If uh, our listeners want to follow it a little more closely, they can uh, basically uh, basically Google them. We'll have links in the show notes to how to get to principles of failure. Ironically, I have a sneaking suspicion that as you transition back to Bahrain and have a little less to do because you don't have lesson plans to write. We'll see a little bit more, but so, uh, listeners will have to check that out as well. We'll sure be following you. Uh, Siddhartha, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Well, thanks for having me, David. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and um, enjoy this conversation. <laughs>